what a lovely day. We've had snow for the past three days. Um, unprecedented levels of snow. Uh, people can't get out of their homes. Uh, cars are exploding in the roads due to the snow. Uh, it's been pretty cool, I guess. How are you? <laughs> I'm cold, I'll say that. It's been lovely. Yeah. It's been lovely. Mm. The kind of weather that makes you want to do nothing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm always surprised. Are we how... doing anything anyway? Good <laughs> 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 question. Ostensibly, we're doing something, but uh -huh. you never know. I'm always surprised by how quiet snow is. I don't know. I haven't been in snow in like years. <laughs> so I don't know. I was stunned. You I was like, to walk in to... when it falls? When it falls, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'm expecting it to make noise. That's part of the magic, is it not? Yeah, no, it's magical. It's quite yeah. good. It's quite good. Um, yeah, a lot of snow. Snow's cool. Yeah, I was out in a blizzard yesterday. Yeah? And I was on a Oof. sort of, on a bit of a hillside overlooking the town, so I sort of got to watch this, like, grey cloud sort of Beautiful. sweep in down the valley and uh, engulf us. I wouldn't mind more snow, honestly. Or yeah. other, Less rain, more snow. I think that'd be a good trade-off. Yeah. Um... The show's preferred form of precipitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Endorsing snow. Endorse snow. We'll, we'll create a tier list of all the forms of precipitation. Sleet at the bottom. I'll say that right now. Uh -huh. um, I don't feel like I encounter sleet very often. Yeah, it's sleeted a couple times in the past few weeks. It's like in the mornings. It was pretty crummy. Uh -huh. um, yeah, it was all right. So it's closer to rain than snow then? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think I usually think of sleet as a sort of like subcategory <laughs> phenomena of snow. Of like sharp icy. I'm not even sure. Just wet, <laughs> more watery than snow. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. We can agree on that. Yeah. Anyway, towards the bottom, that's like deep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we um, can't agree on a definition, but yeah, we but can it sucks. agree. <laughs> but it sucks. It's not good. Um, I went over to the allotment to go check on the broad beans, and they were underneath. I just took the cover off, and they were underneath like a foot and a half of snow. Mm. So. Haven't checked them. That was two days ago. I haven't checked them since. I recovered them. I remember. I no remember idea. to put my pane of glass on them before it got super cold, and mm. then it got covered in like three or four inches of snow, and then they've been without sunlight for three or four days. Yeah. I went and uncovered them yesterday, but then put it back on because last night it was. I don't know how cold it got, but it was meant to drop to like minus six or something. Yeah. Um, and then I was my intention to go and take it off this morning, but I've forgotten. Yep. Well, yeah. So now I'm supposed to go over to the lab. So I was supposed to go over yesterday. The end. I go and hopefully give the do the beans a dose of sunlight. Yeah. Please comment on this Sufficient episode. To save them. <laughs> Remind Dan. Save the beans. I think all my beans might be dead, quite frankly, but we'll see. I have hope held out. Um, my potatoes are doing quite well chitting, um, although I did just speak with someone at the allotment and he said not to do that because it doesn't matter, so I don't know. Charles Dowding said to do it, though, so that's why I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> Wait, presumably um, you're supposed to start do that at a time sufficiently close to when you're going to be able to plant them. I think it's like like months away. Weeks okay. to months away. Okay. I think okay. it's like four okay. to six weeks. So I'm just yeah, So they're I'm not gonna, gonna spend too long in this um, yeah this phase of growth. Exactly. Well that's the thing. I'm probably gonna be moving soon and it's gonna be such a hassle moving individual potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Are they not in an egg carton or something? They are, but it's like you can't have to be careful. You can't put them in a box because you don't want to break the chits off. So it's like it's just going to kind of be a separate trip of me just carrying, carrying these potatoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One trip for the potatoes. The first thing that gets moved in. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, that's good. 
I don't think. I mean, they're going to have to go up to the allotment at some point anyway. Yes. So you're just making some of the journey. (laughs) True. Yeah, true. I'm slowly getting them closer to their new home. Um, Did anything interesting at all happen in the world recently? I cannot think of a single thing other than the death and destruction, as mentioned in last episode, that's been following us all year and indeed Mm. the year before that. One thing I've been wanting to mention is how weird it is that Trump's, like, just gone. It's very strange. Do you feel any kind of, like, part of your brain remorse, is missing? Loss. Not remorse. Exactly. Perhaps loss. <laughs> it's just odd. It's just odd that, like, all it took uh-huh. was getting him off Twitter uh-huh. and now he's some, just fucking gone. Some uncanny feeling. Yeah, it's very odd. Um, well, I, I wasn't, like, he didn't feature very prominently in my, like, existence beforehand. <laughs> Fair enough. Although, I did see, I saw a little piece of footage of his press secretary saying something. His press secretary? Yeah. Or the, the White House, rather, the White House press secretary. Okay. I, I assume the White House press secretary is the president's press secretary. Wait, wait, you mean Biden's or his? Oh, Biden's. Biden's. Okay. Sorry, apologies here. No. Biden's press secretary. The new one. The new one. I'm not sure what the old one looked like. Was it Haley all the way through? Uh, last hit? I remember, it was Mitt Romney's daughter, so I don't know. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I've been, been paying so attention for a while. So long ago, given up. So long ago. It'd be really funny if Biden bought back Sean Spicer. <laughs> I'll tell you what <laughs> awesome. I was doing. I finally got around to watching some videos about the whole like, GameStop thing. What's your, uh, what'd you come away with? I mean, I wasn't really any the wiser because it wasn't exactly intended. It was it was a semi, semi-informative, semi-comedic rundown of the events. So I don't, How much did I don't you understand lose? the broader implications? I didn't realize it was a months and almost years long oh, okay. activity. I didn't realize it. it the, the peak of events it took several days. Did you lose any I money, Dan? Say. I didn't. I did not. I did not buy any uh, GameStop stock. Mm. But anyway, there was a little clip of whatever Joe Biden's press secretary. Oh, called yeah, right. In that in that video, and I was just a little bit like, oh, that's uh, what I assume is going to be at least a semi competent face yeah for uh for a i don't know semi-competent yeah i didn't want to say i didn't (laughs) want to i didn't want to give the administration the credence of being competent Mm -hmm. semi or otherwise yeah but more professional sure i suppose sure um yeah in probably an equally infuriating way sure if i cared to be infuriated i might well be infuriated but (laughs) i don't care yeah, I was, try- I was trying to explain to someone the other day about how, like, even if you're happy about, like, oh, good, now it's Biden, now it's Obama, it's not Bush, it's not Trump. It's like, you're still... Because I remember when I-, I was quite a bit younger when Obama first came into office, but there even, like, for me, there- I was, like, in middle school or high school or something, and there was, like, a feeling of, like, oh, God, thank God, now I won't be as angry all the time. But it's like, no, you're just as angry because it- you- now you're not directing it at Bush. Now you're not directing it at Trump. You're directing it to, like, these people that won't let them do their jobs. And it's the same <laughs> anger. It's the exact same anger. It's just, like, if anything, you-, you knew where your anger could go under Trump when you're, like, a lib because it's like, I hate Trump. But when you're a liberal and it's just like, oh, God, now Joe Biden's president and my life's still going to suck. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you don't know yeah. who to be angry at. Yeah. I was just about to say now it's the it's now it's the liberals and the Democrats turn to turn to conspiracy theory. Exactly. But, but the but the but the the entirety of the Trump administration was oh, yeah. full of like liberal and democratic conspiracy 100%. theory lunacy as well. So um, Did you see did you see but maybe it can reach new heights, who knows? Who That'd knows? be fun. That'd be fun. Did you see any of the GameStop stuff where I forget who it was, someone on MSNBC or somebody, it might have been Anderson Cooper actually, whatever channel he's on, he said something like, um uh 
it was he was like we've heard that it might be Russia or Iran buying the GameStop stock to to, to like screw these hedge fund managers. It's well, just like, yeah, I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a clip. Jimmy Kimmel or one of the Jimmy Kimmel was saying something similar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's just All right. Like, well, now we know where Jimmy Kimmel's fortune is invested. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Goddamn Russians. Or, or, or he he well knows his ideological function exactly. in the apparatus, which is to defend yeah. the exactly, which is quite financial well. elites. Um, Russia. I wish I could just blame everything on Russia or yeah. Iran. Why not? I mean, we could. We could. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we ever, like, go so to record and, like, we, like, screw up and we don't hit the record button. Yeah, like, if we ever lose an episode. It was hacked. For sure. <laughs> Putin. Putin. Um, speaking of Putin, <laughs> speaking of Eastern Europe, which is adjacent to Central Europe. <laughs> which um, is adjacent to where we are in Western Europe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where we're talking about this stuff that took place in Central Europe. Uh-huh. Uh, we read some stuff about the German Revolution, the entirely successful and never uh, ill thought about German Revolution, uh, 1918, 1919, depending on where you want to kind of put it, 1917, 1918, 1919. Um, it was called, I only wrote down an abbreviation, so I think it was called The Problems of the German Revolution by Reinhard Rurup. It's just a short little essay, and it's doing exactly that, right? It's not giving you a big history of the German Revolution. It's just saying about what the problems of it were and it goes into a bit of the historiography of the revolution right yeah it's a very partial and sweeping overview mm. and um it engages in detail only in the places where it chooses to i think it's in te- i mean it was published in 68 mm. so it's a little dated now sure but only in the sense that well, yeah it's history yeah exactly so it's fine you know what blew my mind is that when he was at the beginning, he basically said, I'm writing this because it's the 50th anniversary of the revolution. And yeah, I was just, just like, whoa. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like one of those. years out from the hundreds. Yeah, it's, well, it's just crazy. It's just crazy to think of like the 60s, the late 60s as being 50 years away from like 1917, 1918. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That blew yeah. my mind. Yeah. I just, maybe because I can't do math or I can't count, but that was well, just Well, no, crazy. but it's just about you, like... Well, which is about to say your, but it's a collective thing, isn't it? Like, uh, mm. I have a similar experience putting the mid-century mm. as close to, like, the Second World War as it was. Sure. Like, I think of the Second World War as being the somewhere near the beginning of the 20th century, but, yeah. like, relative proximity to the, to the, uh, the mm. middle of the century. To the middle of the century, <laughs> sure. Um, so I don't know what it speaks to. It speaks to either the... the, the the speed of events, the number of historical events, or our willingness to recast them in a new light, or uh... I think yeah, I think that yeah, uh-huh. education. It's kind of like we're, I mean, at least for American education, it's like this is when it began for us, baby. This is mm-hmm. when we started kicking ass and taking names. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, you know, America was certainly at its peak post World War Two for those for that decade or so. Sure. Um, so yeah, maybe that has something to do with that. I just thought that was crazy. Yeah, uh, it's just like Jesus. Uh-huh. Speaking of, of um, speaking of correcting history and obscuring history, interesting and rewriting history. <laughs> I mean, this uh, this essay was written at a time when there was a process of rediscovering German history going mm-hmm. on. Absolutely. Um, and so, really, I think a lot of this essay is intended to um, add to, but also to uh, collect together various pieces of research that have sure. been happening 
or uh, bits of the history that have been being rediscovered mm. and sort of to collect them together um, and to correlate them and see how they relate and yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's a lot of things sort of missing kind of thing like sure. um the violence and the bloodiness of certain events have sort of disappear yeah the fry corp basically yeah, doesn't get mentioned no at all function featuring yeah. not at all mm. any of the high profile or mass killings sure um yeah, Rosa Luxemburg, Carl Liebknecht, none yeah, of them get mentioned. mentioned. At all. Yeah. Um, which is curious to some extent to me because so much of the thrust of this is about the the tragedy of events to some extent and the complicity of the mainstream of uh, and the right of the workers' movement and the, the ostensible sort of socialist movement in. Um, curtailing the possibility of any real radical advance coming from mm. the revolution of 1918-1919 and the degree to which that failure allowed for the the 20s to develop in the way that they did and result in the sure the sort of like the counter-revolution that was the mm. or the yeah the counter-revolution uh, that was the sort of nazi ascension to power mm. You'd have thought there'd be a lot of desire. There could be desire and space in this essay to really detail the complicity of uh, social democrats in um, some of the worst crimes of this yeah, period. absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Munich doesn't get mentioned. None of the Soviets really get mentioned. Well, that's not true. Workers' councils do get mentioned, but it doesn't bring up what happened in Bavaria with the Soviet. He just kind of writes it off as like one sentence being like, and then some like, you know, paramilitary groups went and took care of that. Sure. Yeah. And, and to some extent, it, I suppose the thesis is that um, so much of the old regime survived the revolution um, that none of the necessary positive advance that could have been made was made, mm. which is quite an interesting narrative, actually, isn't it? Because it's not it's not about individuals or specific crimes sure it's about the kind of like the large scale result of uh, the events mm. and how they did or didn't change uh german society or german political and social thinking and they didn't change the operations of the state yeah or the various arms of the state kind of thing absolutely or the amount of control that could be could be applied to various arms of the state mm. um the, the essay doesn't go into great detail into the events of the 20s mm. um and my knowledge of it is very much lacking <laughs> um so cut that out <laughs> so this could be a narrative and a piece of history that we want to follow up yeah i mean it's interesting because the general idea right is that well i suppose to kind of explain it we should maybe we should talk about the historiography of it a bit about how people have viewed the revolution sure because it seems like the revolution I, the reason that I kind of said maybe it started in 1917, maybe it started before that, is because, again, in any of these events, it's like, how do you pinpoint a beginning? So much of it was born out of this just anger of dealing with World War One, mm -hmm. Germany obviously losing World War I. Um, and when, what's his name, Rurup brings up the kind of like stab in the back myth that Hitler used to kind of say, this is why we lost World War One, and this is why all your lives suck so much. Um, he basically says that defeat for the revolution was its impetus. It wasn't the other way around, right? It wasn't that they uh, lost this war because of everybody kind of being like, uh, uh, you know, we need to, I don't know. He, he, he's kind of like flipping the stab in the back myth on its, on its head because it says the revolution kind of begins 
with the defeat or at least with claiming that like you know with the surrender and stuff like that right so when when the revolution takes place we have a bunch of social democrats basically who come to power right and there there's like one or two transitional phases where it seems like everybody's demands of just getting rid of the nobility getting rid of you know the kaiser all this different stuff getting rid of big point seems to be of just getting rid of the you know military system of nobility in the military um that the social democrats kind of begin to give lip service to this kind of like uh these revolutionary ideas floating around but then eventually what they claimed was their transitional government to get to a more democratic society just winds up becoming the government right and so then because they want to stay in power they kind of have to not like go to war although actually yeah kind of go to war with like the more radical elements within german society who wanted to keep things pushing keep things moving it's kind of like the typical case of like the revolution eating its children except the children didn't get eaten because the children like you know kept running everything it was like in a lot of revolutions you see like uh this kind of movement forward where like the people whether it's like jacobins or the Girondin and the french revolution uh wanting to be more like Okay, guys, well, we're done with the revolution sort of now. The, the, uh, any, uh, at any point in time, the sort of revolutionary crest of the wave gets exactly. sort of consumed as it goes over. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Comes along. <laughs> but here, it doesn't. It just seems like the Social Democrats are kind of able to stop the revolution and uh, stop its movement left to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I wonder whether it's a twofold thing or whether there's one um, primary cause, whether the Social Democrats were so much more organized and knew what they wanted to achieve in the way mm. that the left didn't or whether yeah. it was just the total lack of coordination from the revolutionary forces i probably shouldn't even say left because mm. the 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 disconsent was very uh, broad but um the sort of ideological commitment or the self-conceptualization of the mm. revolution by the revolutionaries was um, not very coordinated. It was quite sort of amorphous. And... But yeah, what, what was it? The, was it that the um, was it that the social democrats were so big brained, or was <laughs> it just that the 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 revolutionary forces which they ostensibly allied themselves with, but mm. really only as a way to find themselves in the position to quash it at every possible yeah a turn um yeah and to most effectively combat it was it that those forces were so weak i guess we should too maybe to say like it obviously it wasn't just the social democrats i mean rope does make a point that it's like you know um so many of like the former nobility guys the former kind of like higher ups the upper classes partnering with the social democrats so it wasn't it wasn't just like these evil social democrats they were evil social democrats but it was also elements of the old faction who wanted to civil service guys he makes a point that like very briefly, he says that a lot of the people who wind up wound up kind of becoming more of the like right wing paramilitary groups that Hitler used, um, and even at the beginning, like the Freikorps people, um, they were all, or a lot of them were um, former military either officers or just people who identified themselves with the upper classes. Whether or not they were in the upper classes, they just kind of liked to be like, you know, these kind of like conservative pricks who like identified with the. Uh, way things used to be the aristocracy and things like that mm -hmm. maybe even with the kaiser i guess i don't know um but yeah he also makes a point that there he adds this kind of 
typical idea, which you see in a lot of revolutions, of there being like multiple revolutions, right? So he says the first phase of the revolution uh, bought the Social Democrats to power. They were like, sorry, Prince Max, we're not going to have you. We're not going to have the Kaiser. We're not going to have any of you chuds. Uh, but things are going to kind of still be the same as they are. We're going to keep a lot of the civil service and power. Um, look at us, guys. We did it. Parliamentary uh, democracy. No more, con no more um, monarchy. No more stuff like that. Which is kind of funny because it's like, I like how much of that had to do with the revolution and how much of that had to do with like Wilson's 14 points where he was like, in order for Germany to surrender, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And one of them was have a parliamentary like system. So it's like, you know, I, I'm actually not too sure how much one had to do with the other, but, um, and then I guess the second phase being typical of a lot of revolutions where the people who were put into power by the revolution want to stop everything and, you know, you had the USP, which was the Independent Social Democrats, which split. Spartacus League, you had the Communist Party. Um, and indeed, you just had the Workers' Councils that were set up during the first phase of the revolution, attempting to push the revolution further. And the Social Democrats, the main bulk of them, and the old party of order, I suppose, uh, wanted to quash it. And they did quash it. And that's kind of where the revolution ends, which is pretty brutal. Mm -hmm. So I guess that that kind of brings us into the um, like the historiography of the revolution, how everybody viewed the revolution after that. Because you can't, like, if you're part of, like, the Social Democrats who put themselves in power, you can't just be like, the revolution was bad. It was all horrible. It was really bad because it's like that the first phase of it put you into power. Mm -hmm. So they had to create this narrative of, like, um, yeah, that first bit was good, and that's all it was. It was just this, you know, the dream of 1848, baby. We finally did it. But also there was this element they added of, like, Bolshevism. That's what they defeated, right? Sure, yeah. I mean... Throughout the 20s, the primary narrative seems to have been the only combatants were the the Social Democrats. Liberals, yeah. And the Liberals, I suppose, or like parties you say of order, I suppose, or like constitutional parties. Mm. I mean, parties in favour of... I mean, there was an extent to which the Social Democrats weren't acting constitutionally in some of their actions. Mm. Um, but they, they, they clearly sought constitutional legitimacy. And, and also... Order. And also just to maintain order kind of thing. Everything that they did was to maintain order. Um, so the narrative were those forces cast against Bolsheviks. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess in the 20s it was very easy to cast all communists or left-wing forces as being Bolshevik. Yeah. Um, Indeed, not just the 20s. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean that, yeah. So, so this official narrative or this pre prevalent narrative for that period clearly excluded a huge number of forces and sort of cast the revolution as victorious to some extent in that it was a defense of sort of the, the sort of like liberal democratic mm. achievement that the achievements or the things that had been achieved um mm. and saw only um sort of villainous communists who sought to subvert it in um yeah in whatever wildly and nefarious ways <laughs> communist seeks to support things <laughs> um, and so um so much of what this new narrative was attempting to uh put back on the table was obviously a huge amount of the sort of the nuance but um if you're going to sort of choose another narrative structure for the historiography the new historiography that was being conducted basically in the mid 50s and into the 60s was this rediscovery of um, the sort of like uh, radical possibility of the revolution, I suppose, mm. or like um, the possibility that it could have had a much more positive 
uh, outcome than the one that was achieved. Sure. Because to obviously to, in the twenties, uh, <laughs> nobody was aware of um, what was going to become the events of the thirties that would lead into uh, Nazism <laughs> and the Second World War, right? Sure. And so the Social Democrats and uh, the Weimar Republic in the twenties that sort of created this sort of triumphalist history. Which to some extent almost erased the revolution in a lot of ways. Like, sure. Um, and it's strange, I think, because to some extent this essay is attempting to put the revolution, or, or to bring together all of the new histories which are attempting to put the revolution back on the table. Mm. Um, but it kind of also ends with this sense of actually the revolution. I mean, it happened. It was yeah. a thing. Um, but it almost might as, might as well not have to some yeah. extent. Um, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, so the sort of the, the, the new history is to sort of recognize uh, the revolution is happening mm. um, and and also not to see the revolution as just something tragic, something which allowed for right wing grievance to uh, propagate itself through the 20s sure. and feed into Nazism. Feed into kind of the same narrative, almost. It's there. Are, there are kind of different elements, but I mean, like the idea of, you know, this clash with clash with Bolshevism that the social social Democrats propagated is like so easy to see how that could be exploited by the right wing, mm -hmm. right? The nationalist, ultra nationalist right wing as it was. And I mean, you know, Hitler would come along and use that same narrative and add the whole stab in the back uh, narrative, which is like, you know, goddamn, this, this communist caused us to lose the war. He would obviously add in Jews. He would add in like Polish people, basically like everyone who wasn't, you know, from Bavaria, basically. Um, but he d he definitely did use a like very similar line that the social democrats used, just to keep order, right? But then Hitler used it to basically, you know, take power and to, uh, you know, have his own way. But it's funny, isn't it? Because I mean, like, obviously, we can see how, how the that narrative was like exploited by Hitler and by the Nazis to foment like ultra nationalist right wing. Um, uh, fervor in Germany, but I, I I did like how Rurup kind of bought it back at the end to kind of say that like that narrative, other than the stab in the back narrative, like that narrative still kind of stayed the same in the context of West German historians studying the revolution during the Cold War, because he basically says right that like they they kind of had to reframe the revolution as a struggle against Bolshevism, still because like otherwise the kind of narrative of like you know what could have been would have all kind of come crashing down so they reframed it as the revolution was still a struggle with bolshevism but because those bolsheviks you know did what they did that opened the door to hitler i thought that was really interesting yeah so it's like this narrative that's like kept uh elements of it have kept the same throughout the weimar republic throughout nazi germany and even throughout western germany and i mean i would imagine even still until now don't, I've never really like, spoken with many Germans about like this revolution and what they get taught. Sure, yeah, times. I guess it's everybody adapting. Well, you, I, I guess you take the 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 existent narrative and you bend it to to match yeah. your times, right? So, like, yeah. In the twenties, it was it was triumphalist, and we 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 celebrate our victory and defeat of Bolshevism and defense of the new democratic republic, which mm. is so glorious that we we live in it and it will last forever. This excellent Weimar constitution that we have. <laughs> Um, we love it, folks. Obviously, obviously, events took a turn, <laughs> and after the Second World War, that narrative existed, continued, but it lost its sort of triumphalist veneer and became yeah. about the tragedy yeah. of um, the 
how how the radical elements in the in the 1918-1919 revolution um, at least laid some of the seeds for what would become mm. the Nazis' rise to power based on yeah how that fed into the, the Nazi narrative, basically. I, I like I like fra- uh, phrasing the transition uh, from Weimar Republic to Nazi Germany as events took a turn. Yeah. <laughs> events indeed took a turn. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, in the kind of like latter stages of the French Revolution, you see this back again, back and forth, back and forth with like the people in power trying to like smack down left-wing uprisings. And then at the same time, when you know, that leaves room for the right wing. They smack down the right wing and then the left wing comes back up and then they smack down the left wing again. And then you get Napoleon. Um, but it's it's funny because in the German Revolution, you see them, they smack down the left and then just don't think about the right at all. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but what about if we let like Hindenburg just stick around. What's the worst that could happen? I mean, it's interesting too, isn't it? Because they basically, basically just says that like the civil service remained exactly the same. All of the social relations were exactly the same as they were prior. It was just like, okay, you don't have uh, the Kaiser and you don't have Prince Max taking his place. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was a ludicrous quote um, <laughs> and I've not written down who it was that it, it was actually quoting. I've just written down the quote. But a contemporary, so someone in the 20s, mm. Um, said that this revolution differs essentially from all earlier revolution revolutions in having broken up and eliminated every institution of the power of the overthrown class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, pretty brutal. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Than that statement. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. And because... so much of the narrative of this essay is the the new revolutionary in their quotes government's mm. total failure to both dismantle and oppose any of the the old the power structures of the old regime um but also to not recognize that there could be any threat of counter-revolution from the right at all yeah um, or maybe maybe like their hands were tied right because it's like they needed the right to stay in power sure so. yeah I, I mean i guess you can i mean okay so Let's we can spin the narrative that's favorable to the social democrats to some sure. extent. Sure. I guess the social democrats. I mean, the, the social democrats kind of become the villains of this piece to some extent, in the in the sense that they um, manipulate the revolution, but also manipulate the revolutionary forces, the other revolutionary forces, I suppose, um, to achieve all their own ends and um, achieve none of the ends of anybody else. Yeah. yeah so, exactly. I mean, so, I mean, you can, you could, one could cast the people they manipulated as, um, foolish for letting themselves be manipulated in the way that they are. Mm. One can berate them, all the, all these other forces for being, uh, poorly organized, poorly disciplined, poorly prepared, mm. all of which was the case. But the, yeah, so the social democrats are a very, uh, feature very prominently in the narrative. Obviously, this, this the 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 German Social Democrats um, come from a revolutionary tradition. At this time, still claiming and deploying socialist, but also um, avowedly Marxist uh, rhetoric mm. and uh, pieces of phraseology and terminology. I mean, they. I guess they'd always contained uh, right and left wing elements, more radical and revolutionary elements, and more sure. sort of uh, evolutionary. Um, big tent. Big. Yeah, <laughs> it was a very big tent. <laughs> but given the social democrats um, 
in some cases support in other cases sort of like complicity by inaction sure in supporting germany's involvement in the first world war uh, and that those choices and those events um uh, precipitated various splits in the party mm. um the right wing kept control of the social democrats and the independent social democrats the more left wing mm. element split and then there was a subsequent split in that faction mm. uh, the spartans league went away and in 1919 formed the communist party mm. um so a lot of the left had, uh, had vacated in various fashions the social democrats and the social democrats had become more uh, evolutionary in their outlook less revolutionary much more willing to be a a party in support of constitutionalism and order mm. i guess if you want to if you wanted to put a very positive spin on their outlook you might have said well one um they really wanted to just sort of get through this process of getting out of the first world war and their 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 internal belief um or at least uh, their the internal belief of many of the people involved was that they would be able to institute and instantiate more sweeping uh, reform of germany um once they got through this sort of like mm. transition into the the new regime that was going to be mm. and whatever um, the whatever that was going to be yeah 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 it wasn't um, really going to be communism. Yeah, and I think for a lot, to, to a large extent, they they had been for a long time a democratic party, and I think they'd been preparing themselves for taking over the German state and developing it towards something more socialistic, socialist inspired, socialist mm. um, in a very gradualist way. Sure. And so it's not a surprise that they, for the most part, weren't um, uh, desperately keen to. Uh, institute some kind of more radical overthrow of the the yeah. the, the the previous order, and then there there is also um, the context in these event in in which these events were happening. One of the things that they really wanted to avoid um, was Allied invasion of Germany. Mm. Um, yeah, and if civil war in some form had have broken out, if events had taken a a avowedly more radical and revolutionary turn um, i think it's highly likely or implied that it's highly likely that that would have happened whether or not that would have for, from from an ex objective standpoint of the development of history in ways favorable to different forces how that invasion would have played out who can say yeah. obviously it would have been terrible for the people involved who would have been, been good would have been involved in the fighting or what have you mm. but clearly the social democrats as a as a party of order, as a party of constitutional order, wanted to maintain for the most part the the territorial integrity of Germany and sort of like yeah transition to peacetime in the fastest way possible. Yeah, which if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, yeah, they'd been at the worst war up until that point for four years. Yeah, but having said that, it's also like I mean the obvious criticism is like, what do you think is going to happen when you partner with the right wing? Yeah. You know what I mean? So indeed, that is what happened. It's interesting. He brings he brings up a couple points that I find really kind of uh, interesting in that context, where he says that like a lot of the mutinies, the kind of you know where historians go, this is where the revolution began, right? Uh, uh, army mutinies and stuff weren't really. It didn't seem like he was implying. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't seem like he was really implying that those were like uh, uh, began by or inspired by any kind of like Marxist or communist left wing thought. A lot of it was just like getting rid of the officer corps and you know, 
trying to make things palatable during, you know, this post-war period. And it's interesting because it seems like even a lot of the workers' councils and stuff like that that were set up, and a lot of the demonstrations even, I mean, it, it, they just seemed so, like nobody was really steering the ship. Like it was just this anger. Like everybody was anger and they, angry and they knew what they were angry about, but they couldn't really do anything about it, right? Mm. I mean, like maybe that's, I'd have to read a bit more, but like maybe that's why Rosa Luxemburg was famously like, oh boy, this is a little, the Spartacus uprising, like this is a little premature. We're kind of jumping the gun here. She wound up kind of being right about that, obviously. Um, but it was interesting. I mean... Also, the kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy he talked about a bit later of the democratic, the more democratically minded officers in the officer corps not being able to get anything done because the social democrats were just dragging their feet with changing anything. So they all just resigned. So you're just left with this ultra right wing core of, you know, officers in the army. Um, yeah, so it's, it's all it's all very interesting. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what more there is to say about it other than just like there needs to be somebody stirring the ship for all of this stuff. And I mean, there was this bottled up anger and I just feel like you see so much of that now, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That you can kind of compare mm -hmm. with like, mm -hmm. everybody's pissed off, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, everybody's pissed off. We all knew exactly what we were pissed off about, but it's yeah. like, what can you do? There's just this anger. Yeah. Yeah. What is made very evident in this essay and what's clearly brimming over and boiling over was this huge amount of anger and yeah. resentment in so many parties uh, from so many places mm. um, in a way that I almost couldn't understand. Mm. But it really seemed like there was this huge desire for like really sweeping change yeah. born out of a really great um, resentment and frustration. Mm. Um, and it kind of felt, it, it, it really is implied that kind of like no quarter would have been immune from this transformation if it, if it was allowed to play out. Kind yeah. Of thing. Absolutely. Um, or at least, like, that resentment and an anger was directed at a great many places. Not just, sort of, like, f from um, the army against the military. Um, but, the I mean, the degree to which, like, the way in which the civil service is cast in this so mm. much really struck me as something that was... Um, I like hard for me to conceptualize and wrap my head around kind of thing. Now, yeah. maybe I don't really understand how the civil service of a, of a sort of like, of the... Is it the state? Yeah, I'm trying to work out what the, <laughs> what the, what the, the, the what, how to characterize the German regime yeah. before 1918. Yeah. Um, I don't know, the German empire, I suppose. Yeah. Like, how the civil service functioned and um, how fully it may have like, it serviced the interests of a particular class and then an elite and the state in a way that was uh, visu visually or um, clearly open to a huge amount of resentment from the population more broadly. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's, it's pretty comparable, right, to like the um, guys in the army who identified more with the upper classes and who identified more with like, maybe they got tossed a bone by like, I don't know, whatever the word would be, like some duke. It's, it's not a duke, but it's like some guy who was just appointed to be uh, a commanding officer in the army. Sure. So maybe they felt like, oh, wow, you know, one day that could be me, something like that. Mm. And I, yeah, it seems like you can draw parallels maybe with the civil service. Um, yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, he really makes the point that the Social Democrats in the first phase of the revolution really only stunned um, the old power system and that nothing else was really born out of that. So it's like, when the social democrats put down the rest of the revolution the second phase they're like oh, okay i guess we'll just get back to the way things were 
nothing really changed at least not for that long sure. as as it changed at all i suppose i did like at one point how he said that um he's talking about how spontaneous the revolution was just born out of this anger or at least the rebellions at the beginning mm. he said that indeed if revolutions are made by reactionaries and not by revolutionaries as babel is supposed to have said the german revolution is a classical case um I, yeah. I separated, I separated um, reactionaries there as like people just reacting to circumstances yeah, exactly. rather than in a kind of like right wing yeah. majoritative sense. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. I mean, it is funny. It is. It's exactly what you're saying. It's like, how can I, I think I have a hard time wrapping my head around how there could be that much anger and everything seemingly like just kind of going the path of least resistance. Although I guess saying that a lot, I guess that makes sense. But it's like. I don't know. It just seems like there needed to be a radical transformation. There needed to be something. But instead, the civil service, the military, it all kind of got kept how it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, as you say, I mean, like, maybe it's that the the revolutionary forces were lacking in any type of leadership, which was going to um, sort of channel that anger to them. Or maybe not a leadership, but like there weren't any organized parties in the way that would have been necessary to yeah. channel that anger. Mm. And... Um, the the forces of order were, order were too well organized compared to somewhere like Russia, where like yeah. um, the desirous regime was, and and the sort of regime that uh, succeeded it were like just like grossly incompetent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know to what extent. I'm I'm almost inclined to wonder whether like more stock should be put in the incompetence of that yeah. regime than the overall competence of the. Yeah. The uh, forces, the revolutionary forces in Russia, not yeah. that they weren't clearly more organized and that they could like mount as more successful challenge to the state, to the regime, to the state when it was necessary. Yeah, I mean, how worrying is that? I mean, it's it's like the it's like Stafford Beer said when Eden Medina was kind of quoting him and saying like he read everything that Marx said. And he did that little diagram of the like. Uh, writing the class struggle as a uh, little, you know, diagram, cybernetic diagram. And he was like, the forces of order, organized. The revolutionary forces, the working classes, not organized. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I was very stressed out reading this because you get the feeling that now, even if a lot of people want to pretend that like, you know, oh God, the beginning of the end of the American empire, it's like, as true as that may be, it's like... At least the revolutionary potential in the United States is like null right now if you consider, if you take this as like any kind of guidance. Because, you know, as crazy as Trump was, as like much of a buffoon as his administration, buffoonery was going on in his administration, it's like local police forces, uh, federal repressive apparatuses, still as organized as ever, honestly. Um, And it's extremely stressful reading something like this where you just go, even if we were to get to the point where there was some sort of revolutionary potential, you'd just go, oh, God, how how organized would you need to be to overcome that? And it seems just like, I don't even want to think about that. It seems like the answer would it'd just be too depressing. You know what I mean? But that, but it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. But how, how you, what, what you, I assume what you mean is how far would it take to get somewhere like the United States or Britain even to the point where Germany was at this time? Yeah. Because... The impression I get anyway from this essay is that the situation was there to be exploited kind of thing. Sure. And it was a failure to marshal those forces. Mm. Um, when I say that the Social Democrats seemingly manipulated 
the revolution and the revolution, the other revolutionary forces. There are lots of ways in which the social democrats had to um, play lip service mm. to the revolution, predicated on, I guess, on a belief on their from their part that these forces were incredibly powerful. Sure. <laughs> the, the 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 network of workers and soldiers councils was enormous and clearly wield at least a huge amount of potential power mm. if it were willing to be deployed um there's a point in which the the social democrats effectively have to say that well basically cede at least rhetorically all sort of formal power to mm. to the councils mm. but obviously that the the power was never wielded in a way that was um yeah that had any direction because as you say one they had no they didn't have any particularly effective leadership but their their desires weren't unified into any particular program they were using um language borrowed from the socialist and from the workers movement because either because it best matched what was actually happening or because it was basically what was available to them at the time yeah but their rhetorical demands were, or their, well, their almost their their actual demands were much more democratic and not particularly um, socialist. They just wanted to advance um, advance democracy into more fields than it seemed like it was going to advance, as we say, into the military, into yeah. the civil service, um, and other fields as well, mm. and seemed very clear like compared to somewhere like russia where there was this back and forth between the soviets and the provisional government um both claiming various powers and responsibilities and although there were sort of like various entente between the two of them and they did come to various arrangements like um the soviets were willing to claim an attempt to wield power sure um or at least to to have influences in the spaces which they they wielded influence kind of thing. Mm. Although this is a short essay, and we should read a much more detailed study <laughs> of the sort of like the German uh, council movement. Mm. Uh, it's in very the dismissive. Of time, of the yeah, the narrative that you get is that um, there really wasn't any willingness to, at least at this time in the winter of nineteen eighteen, there really wasn't any willingness to deploy that power. And the way that he describes it was that they were basically compared to Russia. They were re- they were unwilling to pose the council structure as a new model for a state structure or an organization mm. of government. Um, there was no willingness to have it be a model. Yeah, um, it was kind of like a network that had fashioned itself, but it it wasn't it wasn't seen for um, its radical potential, I suppose. Yeah. Now later on in in nineteen nineteen, when there is this second wave of revolution, when um, it becomes apparent that the 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 desires and the demands of the the initial wave really weren't going to be um, met when sort of left wing forces became more organised. Um, there was this switch to a sort of like a much more rhetorical commitment to councilism. Count the 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 the, the terminology of the councils became. Um, something attached to uh, left-wing ideology, left-wing political theory. But by that point in time, the actual existing council movement had been so thoroughly 
mm. sort of like either sidelined or quashed that like um yeah that possibility didn't exist anymore <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny i don't know if this was just by virtue of <laughs> the reality of the events that took place or by Rupp's kind of view of the revolution but I had always had this view of like it was this close in Germany like it was this close we were almost there we we're almost had you know like a socialist government an actually existing socialist government put into place and then you know you just go off on the alternate histories from there right it's yeah, like yeah, what if yeah. there were two communist countries in Europe blah blah yeah. blah blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. um reading this though it really made it apparent that it was not that close yeah. at all it didn't really seem like uh, communists were almost in power. A lot of the, a lot, of, yeah, I don't know. A lot of those narratives were kind of changed. Even just the narrative of like the Freikorps, as much as he talks about it, as being like, I feel like now you kind of think about the people that Hitler used to eventually kind of take power as being like people, and you know, like working class people, and you know, of the people, people. But it's like in this, you kind of get the feeling that it's like, no, they weren't. They were like kind of like at least something resembling middle class or above. Or people who had, like, had their ideologies twisted by those people. So, yeah, I, I don't know. This essay did kind of change a lot of those narratives in my head for me. And we should definitely read more about mm -hmm. this revolution mm -hmm. that isn't, you know, 27 pages. But, um, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think the main thing that I took away from this was depression. Because you don't see, it doesn't come across that the revolution was that close to happening. Although it's funny because I didn't really realize, I didn't know much about the councils. I didn't know much about that. And I think that that's kind of, like, stunning that that even managed to take place. But... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's another place where another piece of this that's um, <laughs> not particularly well worked out. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, maybe, maybe we were intended to have more uh, familiarity <laughs> with the history on reading this essay kind of thing. Mm. Um, but it's kind of coming back again to like our shock at the degree of resentment there was. Yeah. Um, and where it was willing to... Um, where that resentment was directed or where willing to, where the how far reaching people were willing to direct that resentment um and that revolutionary sort of desire it's also yeah quite shocking that such a sort of large network of organization could sort of like spontaneously collect itself together yeah absolutely yeah um, it's one of the things that has always inspired has inspired a lot of people who engage with sort of left wing theory kind of mm -hmm. thing um is the the degree to which collective organizations of the working class such as councils or soviets which are basically the same thing mm. do seem to generate themselves with the degree of spontaneity yeah. kind of thing yeah um, mm. people do come together to consider and defend their sort of collective interest i suppose yeah yeah, yeah absolutely um yeah, there's there's definitely hope in that. I mean, because even though Rope does make the point that it's like these, you know, a lot of this spontaneous action, especially in the military, wasn't being directed by like anything other than reaction to events. Um, yeah, no, there's definitely hope in that, right? I mean, people, at least some people at some points have figured out what's best for everybody and including themselves and tried to act on that. Um, there's an Adam Curtis documentary. It's three parts. I forget what it's called. It's like Ghosts of the Past or something like mm. that. But the first part, he talks all about Germany attempting to come to terms with itself post-World War II and that generation coming into conflict with um, the, like, you know, Badermeinhof, Red Army Faction generation that were, like, their children. And it's so interesting. Like, he interviews a lot of that generation, the children generation, 
who are like by the time he's making this movie like all grown up right but he talks to them about them confronting their parents and being like so what did you do in world war ii what were you like were you a nazi because we've never talked about this before and their parents just having a complete like we're never going to talk about this ever again mm. but it's interesting because as the movie goes on finds that generation and he's able to talk with them and you know they're like i don't fucking want to talk about this at all you know we're not gonna we're not gonna go into this at all because these are like people who presumably like were eventually lived in west berlin and kind of had more of a western outlook on things but as he speaks to them more they go oh do you want me to play the like song that we used to play in like hitler youth on the piano for you and they like mm. start to get it out and they start to sing and they start to do all this stuff and it's this crazy psychological twist of like this repression coming out and I don't know. I don't know. It's very crazy. It's now that we have the story where we can kind of bookend it with the beginning of World War One all the way to the like Red Army faction era. It's just crazy the way these different generations had to deal with the trauma that they had. And I mean, to bring it back to this essay, I mean, that's perfectly embodied in this warping of ideology that the different states had to do to say that the revolution as it existed, even if they were admitting that it did exist, was bad. You know what I mean? Just how you have to break your mind to make that happen, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. History. Yeah. Can't trust it. You do have to realize that things don't just happen in a void and that they're all connected. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, tough. Yeah. From the education about these events that I received, mm. the 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 idea that it was defeat in World War One and um resentment about that and resentment about how germany was treated by the victorious powers in world war one that fed into mm. support for nazism and the eventual outbreak of world war ii that's just what hitler said that yeah. was his excuse. what what, off, what doesn't what escapes notice quite often is um the failure of this revolution and its connection to the eventual uh, rise of Nazism, kind of mm. thing. Like, um, the proximity that Germany got to real radical social, political, and economic change mm. um, was quite close. Mm. And I think it left quite a scar sure. that um, was clearly very apparent through the 20s and... Uh, led into future events kind of thing yeah are we are bourgeois societies more is it easier for them to pallet fascism or communism you be the judge folks <laughs> you be the judge but you're right it's funny because like that narrative that we're left with about oh it's just resentment with how they were treated in world war one that led to everybody's being so mad that's like <laughs> that's basically the stab in the back man that's yeah. like a hop skip and a jump away from what hitler said his excuse was yeah yeah, yeah um yeah, yeah. fools it's yeah it, yeah it's absolutely maddening um mm -hmm. and it is just because they had this brush with left-wing ideology this brush with actual real monumentous social change mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. that they're just not willing to come to terms with and we're still not i mean i don't know i don't know how the german education system works but i doubt they're like guys we almost did it <laughs> <laughs> no i would imagine not <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know who it was that said that behind every revolution, uh, behind every fascism, there's a failed revolution. Mm. Um, might have been Benjamin, but uh, mm. I think he's clearly talking about this instance. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, bummer. Definitely seems like the revolution that has the most pertinence to um, our times, though, that we've spoken about so far. Um, I mean, obviously, you can find much more recent ones. Um, 
but this just seems like oh boy how brutal what a mm-hmm. bummer mm-hmm. um yeah and i mean it's yeah obviously it's good to keep talking about for that reason um if for no other reason than to keep talking about like the people who literally like gave their lives to try and make this happen i mean it's I was looking up different photos of like um, Berlin at the time of the revolution and the Spartacus uprising and stuff. And it's crazy because you just see photos of like the Spartacus League, people hiding behind like books with like machine guns being like, it's like nine people and they're like, well, we're about to die. But like, <laughs> that's insane. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. I cannot imagine a situation where I would like, I don't, I just can't imagine putting myself in that situation. You know what I mean? Sure. Where you basically know you're going to die, but you're fighting for something that's so like, Guys, we need to do this, otherwise it's all gonna go to hell. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm impressed yeah. with them, I'll say Fair that. Enough. It made me think a lot about um something that I've heard Mike Monet talk about, about constitutionalism and whether mm. you're going to be or or set yourself up as being against the constitution of the state in which you live. Mm. Um and the the proximity to constitutional order that people that various actors put themselves in this mm. made that question to me quite a live thing. Like, um, cause the social Democrats clearly like set themselves, they presented themselves into some ways being anti-constitutional, right? Mm. Um, they were willing to rhetorically draw their, um, their legitimacy from the workers movement. Well, I suppose that's also because that's how they kind of, took power was by a like breaking of what the constitution as it existed for a brief period yeah yeah yeah. but it was as yeah exactly but as but it was all with the intention of Mm. restoring constitutional order to some extent sure yeah yeah Um, it just made that feel like a much more sort of like opened up a lot of the sort of gray space between the black and white of being yeah absolutely constitutional or not kind of thing yeah, I remember hearing an interview with him at one point where he was saying that he was in the Labour Party, but then he realized, like, I'm actively saying, like, we need to overthrow the state. So he's <laughs> like, I basically just gave them 20 bucks to kick me out. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you take that logic, I, I, yeah, I definitely see what you're saying about, like, the gray zone. But it's like, if you are setting yourself up with the political aim of overthrowing the state, it seems logically it would follow that you can't that entryism won't work, but I don't know, call me crazy. <laughs> because it's like, why would anyone want you in their party? Yeah. But something I've been thinking about a little bit, like if you're willing to, if you're going to set yourself up as anti-constitutional to some extent, like what would that actually look like? Yeah. Because that, I mean, obviously um, McNair has said, and it's evidently the case that um, there are, right-wing forces operating in britain which are anti-constitutional and i don't mean like avowed nazis i mean nazis i mean like um the extent to which say the brexit Brexit movement Mm. um opposed itself to uh well cast cast the legitimacy of parliament as being in question kind of thing yeah um cast uh the legitimacy of various rulings of the judiciary as being um, invalid based on like populist lines. Yeah, ba- based on sort of populist belief. Mm. When you cast those kind of actions as being like appearing to be anti systemic kind of thing, like um, to me anyway, it sort of opens up this space for what would um, sort of what, what would 
seemingly anti-constitutional, anti-systemic, anti-state to some extent demands look like that didn't seem like mad and totally out of place. And, yeah. Like, yeah. From a hundred years ago, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which which so many sort of like um, communist and socialist demands read of kind of read as. Um, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to set that up as a question for now, but like, well, it's... no, I think I think it's interesting, right? Because I like maybe the right wing has settled on a good medium where it's like you're not just saying get rid of everything all at once, institute communism now. It's sure. more of like a they they pick on specific things to make their greater point. Yeah, of yeah. The yeah. State and I guess what they've also done is built up a counter authority, right? Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much all, all all of that stuff is cast in the guise of the sort of like. Um, the legitimacy of a Brexit that came from the referendum mm. was a sort of populist legitimacy that trumped mm. all other forces to some extent. Mm. So, uh, yeah, you, I guess you need to build up counter power, but also counter narrative and um, some place from which to draw a counter legitimacy, I suppose, or mm. um, hopefully from the people. Sure. But it's I, where would where I, yeah I see what you're saying where would that come from? Yeah. And what yeah what would it sound like talking to normies? <laughs> uh, yeah. Where in a conversation, <laughs> in a conversation that you were having with a normal person, mm. from where could you draw a legitimacy which would feel not crazy, plausible, plausible, yeah, or justified, justified, you know? sure. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny, right? Because that's there. I mean, it's I mean, all around us. But yeah. it's like what you're saying. Yeah, it's like how do you get that across yeah. to people? And I guess it's a question of reconstructing a kind of like um, class-based narrative, which doesn't shy away from uh, the exp- the exploitation that's all around us, and uh, sure, we should set our sights against kind of thing. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, it makes me thinking about the things that could have been explained recently. I mean, obviously, you did see some anti-state activity that never would have existed 10, 15 years ago with, in the wake of George Floyd and everything with, you know, people talking about, why do we need a bloated police department like this? Sure, yeah, Stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just by yeah, I mean, call, call in into question, um, or, yeah, pointing to the American and and also the British mm. Um, states inherent systemic racism mm. is certainly a a, a, a a pointed attack at uh, the constitutional nature of the state sure. in and of itself kind of thing. Mm. Um, one that the parties of order are definitely afraid of because yeah. i mean if you look at how they just you know everything happened with the black panthers with fred hampton everything where they were just like okay we need to end this by force yeah absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but but um Democrats were very willing to draw on. Oh sure, a, a rhetorical sort of like um, commitment to uh, defunding or, in some ways, disempowering the police. Wait a minute, you're telling me that you you didn't have a tear in your eye when Nancy Pelosi took a knee? Wow, Dan! Oh my God! Wow. Um, just a softy joke, man. <laughs> just a goddamn softy. It's funny, yeah, because you do need to take it a step further, and you can't. You need to tell people you can't be hypnotized by what they're trying to do. They're still your enemies. You can't say abolish the police and then go effing vote for you know Nancy Pelosi or something like that. <laughs> Kamala Harris. <laughs> exactly, literally, who everybody loves. Speaking of legitimacy, if somehow, like, if she runs next time and wins. Or I'm sorry, if she runs next time and Joe Biden doesn't run for a second term, 
who's gonna care <laughs> like i know that this is like a tired point but it really hit me the other day where it's like nobody really liked kamala in the primaries i don't know i mean that's like a very tired point at this point but it's like sure talk about bending I mean, over backwards I mean, yeah but yeah i mean there have been former vice presidents who've run oh sure and not gained a nomination right i yeah. mean if they i suppose they've won and lost yeah um do they they frequently win nominations but it can't be the case that they always win nominations uh, who, um, who would that have been if they didn't win the nomination i feel like that might have happened did it happen under i don't know i don't know yeah i couldn't tell you <laughs> look it up <laughs> I'm trying to even think of people's vice presidents. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ford obviously got it. George W. Bush was, um, got it. Was was Biden in the in the primary at any point in 2016, or was it always? No, I don't oh, think okay. so. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that was right after his son died, or during his son's death. I'm not sure, but I don't think he was ever in the primaries. Could that could be completely wrong? I don't know. I don't. I don't remember that. Yeah. How many presidents have been former vice presidents? It's a lot more than you think. Probably a lot. A lot. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Bush, the first, Ford, uh, was Reagan others. vice president for a while? No. Okay. I don't think so, no. Um, this is where I get scared talking about uh, this Nixon on the show. Was definitely. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, because that's like, oh boy, I'm going to get this wrong. Um, John Adams. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, Germany, uh, what could have been? Um, bummer. Anything else to add, I suppose, about the German Revolution? We'll definitely be coming back to this because this is obviously like a pivotal moment in world history. Uh, one might yeah, say I'm where for... the world failed to turn. The turning point where the failed world <laughs> failed to turn. But um... Yeah, I feel very tantalized um, <laughs> or enticed. Oh, or, dang, um... keep going. <laughs> so much for the, from this narrative... Um, so much of what is lacking from this narrative is like uh, on the ground sort of social history. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, let me just read the last paragraph just because why not? It's been a while. It basically just says the Weimar democracy embodied a principle that was basically anti-revolutionary, concerned with the establishment of order and opposed to the dictatorship of the proletariat. Only the short-sighted could feel a sense of triumph and believe that the objectives of 1848 had been achieved. No, everything that in 1848 had been a bold enterprise of project progress turned now into an instrument of conservative slowdown employed to overpower the revolution and to provide its opponents with the opportunity for legal activity and growing influence. Germany had a victorious revolution. It had the chance of democratizing itself thoroughly. It failed to make use of this chance. Sick. Um, that's, that basically says it all. Bummer. Mm. Um, we should read some Rosa Luxemburg soon. Um, I found her a very interesting kind of like historical figure. I like her relationship with Carl Liebknecht and everything. I think is kind of interesting, um, obviously, but yeah, I, I read in doing like a little bit of background research for this episode. I just read the like anecdote about her. Um, she'd been in prison for two years up until the revolution, right? And then as soon as she left, there was like a crowd waiting for her and she like gave a speech and everybody cheered. It's like, that's so fucking cool, dude. Mm -hmm. That rocks. Um, so when Dan and I get imprisoned for doing this podcast, we better have like, <laughs> it be a crowd outside. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like Meowgrith and that'll be about it. Um, Very hungry. Um, 
All right. Well, yeah, I don't I don't really have anything to add. I suppose we should introduce the show. I'm Jack. <laughs> this has been Auxiliary Statements. Before we go, we should mention that we have begun a capital uh, reading series. So if you didn't see that in your feed, go back and look. That is, should be there. Um, we read the first six pages. Probably got some stuff wrong. We did get some stuff wrong. Who cares? We're still reading the book. And should we say that we might have one out on Tuesday? Should we just say We it? can say that we might. <laughs> we, can say we might have one out on Tuesday. So look out for that. That's going to be a new thing. And yes. Anything else? Is there any other updates? I don't think so. Capital reading sessions. Good. Capital. Good book. Very exciting. The tension builds. Um, all right. This is uh, auxiliary statements. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, thank you, Dan. Thank you, listener. Thank you. And see you next time. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People Too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.